Good morning, church. How y'all doing today? You know, I hope when you hear uh, Ray or Eric or Keith or Shay going through the announcements that you realize that, you know, if you miss something, you can, you can ask them about what's going on. You can talk to, to Kathy. You can talk to the, the leaders in this church. The, the men are gathering and they're going through God's word. The women are constantly in this building and there's activity that's happening and there's learning and there's discipleship. Our community groups are thriving. There are people all over Stanwood and in this area that are meeting together. They're reading God's word. They're going about the work of making disciples. And we're supposed to be about that work. We're talking about Christian maturity constantly, every single week, about, about growing in the image of the Son of God, of God himself. And so as you are engaging on Sunday and you're hearing the different ways in which the church is engaging, I hope that you're taking notes so that you can be a part of it. Amen? All right. Hey, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. We're going to start there, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 4. And if you, if you didn't notice, there's only four chapters in Colossians. So we are, we are almost done. We're, we're blowing through this thing. You know, if it's your first time joining us, we are glad that you're here. We want to welcome you today. This is week 9 of our series called Little Church, Big Christ. We're going to wrap up chapter 3 today by gaining an, an exciting understanding of what it looks like to be radically different in this life that, that Christ has purchased with his own. So why don't we go to him in prayer before we dive into this text today. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this day. I thank you for uh, this time that we have to gather together. Lord, thank you for the, the words of your gospel, of uh, the truth that is in your son, Jesus, that uh, we can meditate on and think about even as we raise our voices and lift uh, them in song to you. Lord, thank you for the activity that's happening in our body even now in which your love is being actively shown among the people of this church. And it's going out uh, to the far reaches of not just Stanwood or Camano, but Lord, uh, to Washington and to the United States and all over the world. Help us to be about that work. Help us now to Man, to focus in on the truth of your word. And as Brent was saying, Lord, would you be the guide in which uh, we learn, in which we submit ourselves to your word, Lord, and which uh, we grow to be more and more like you every single day. Jesus, would these words be glorifying and honoring unto you? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's go, and go ahead and read Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, starting in verse 18. I'm going to take us to the first verse of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, we talked about this last week a little bit, about how Paul is building out these concentric circles. The first thing he did in chapter 3 was he told us that in Christ we are to uh, put away sin, we are to put on Christ, we are to set our eyes, our affections, and our desires on the example of Christ in all things. And now Paul, on the eve of putting that in our ears and on our hearts, is going to challenge us by moving out to the next concentric circle and say, how do you view as a Christian the primary relationships in your wife or in your life, starting with your marriage and your relationship between parents and children and then your relationship with your coworkers? Now, I have two thoughts as we enter into a really challenging passage. 
This is not to be dramatic, church, but I'd like to just say on the front end that Satan is waging war on the Christian home as we speak. It's not a war that he will ultimately win because he decisively lost it on the cross. But as Christ followers, we need to be prepared to face him. We need to be prepared to face our own flesh that is battling within us. We need to be prepared to to fight that battle every single day in our homes. And so as we enter into admittedly very hard subjects today, I want to encourage each person in this room to, to humbly submit themselves to God's word every person in all of the relationship dynamics that we're going to talk about. Let's seek to see the unique and blessed roles that God is setting out for us that quite literally in Christ change the world. The second thing I want to acknowledge is that there's a lot of broken relationships in this room right now. There are people that have been harmed in the context of the safety that should have been safe in marriage and in family and in our labors. And so this passage is going to hurt some people as we naturally consider how we relate to each other and we consider the betrayal that we might have experienced in past relationships. And so while we are not able to speak to that hurt personally here and now, this text is going to challenge us to discover how we can navigate even the broken relationships according to the will of God, and to cling to the ultimate truth that our worth and our value is not determined by our relationships, but it is determined by our relationship with the bridegroom and with the good and loving father and with the man we call our just master. No one in this room is alone. All of us belong to the Lord, and in him we have a family that God forged out of nothing. So in all all honesty, in that context, we can do this together. It's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be good. Let's say it won't be a lot of fun, but it'll be good. I don't think it'd be fun. I don't know. All right. Three types of relationships we have here today. Relationships that are redeemed in Christ. Relationships that are being redefined by God in Christ. So let's start with the first uh, coupling today in verses 18 and 19. The first point is this. Because of Christ, marriage will never be the same. Because of Christ, marriage will never be the same. Now let's actually begin by going back to verse 17 of chapter 3 where it says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Church, we know this by now, that, God, or that, that Paul is con- continually creating bridges from one passage to the next. And so 17 is meant to help us unpack and think through everything we are about to hear. He says we're to set our minds on the things that are above in verses 1 to 4. And so the context of work and family and hobbies and pleasure, our participation in politics, all of the workings of the world around us, all of that is meant to be conducted in the light of what God has done to reconcile the Christians in this room to him through Jesus. And so in Jesus, we can seek to live life in his name. We can represent him. And here's the cool thing. We can be empowered to do so by his spirit. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul's about to flip the Roman world on its head. And it's important that we keep that in our mind's eyes as we're reading all of this. Written to real people who are living out these relationships in a real historical context. And he's saying to these Romans in Colossae, The things that you do now are going to be radically different because of what Christ has done. So where does he start? He starts in verse 18 with with a statement that shows that he's putting his uh, his money where his mouth is, right? He's going to drop one of the most contested verses in all of Scripture in the modern era. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, friends... As those words make their way through this room today, and as some of us begin to squirm in our seats a little bit and look for the nearest exit so that we can dodge out as soon as humanly possible, let me assure you that in the ancient world, these these men and women that are hearing this for the very first time are feeling the exact same thing. In fact, it would have been the Roman men in Colossae that might have felt the most uncomfortable with this particular message from Paul. And not for the reasons that men in this room might feel uncomfortable right now. 
See, because the reason that these Colossian men would feel uncomfortable is that as they are reading verse 18, they are not doing so in isolation. They're moving on to the next verses, and what they're hearing in verse 19 is, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. And so their eyebrows might have been raised a little bit at that. Might have been the first time some of them have ever been told that in their lives. Then they hear, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord and the crushing pressure of knowing that they'd be responsible for teaching their children to obey the Lord would have come to their minds. Then they would have heard, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And at that point, their whole worlds are being flipped upside down because the crushing weight of what they had never considered had been laid at their feet. The Colossian men in the room would have been very uncomfortable. And the first reason we know this is because Paul explained the relationship of wives to their husbands was to be done within this word he used, submit. Now let me tell you, there is a big difference between the word submit and the word he uses next, which is obey. I point out in verse 20, when he talks about children, and in verse 22, when he's going to talk about slaves, he uses that word, obey. And I know plenty of people in this room right now are not looking to give Paul a medal because he uses the word submit instead of obey. But let me assure you that when Paul wrote submit, he knew exactly what he was doing in that moment. See, because to obey is to, to hear and to set out to comply. It's complete obedience. It is subservience to an authority figure. Obedience would have been the expectation in the Roman world or the Greek world or the Jewish world for children and for slaves. But here's the thing. Obedience would have been expected for wives in those contexts. And yet while Paul reaffirmed and encouraged the obedience of children and slaves in that day with wives, Paul uses a very different word. He says they are to submit. Let's figure that out, church. It's a big deal. To submit means to be subject to, but here's the thing it means to submit oneself, not by compulsion, but willingly. Submission is not the uh, behavior of a slave, and it does not take on the temperament of a doormat. In fact, submission is intentionally used in part to affirm and establish here for these Roman men, that the wife was in no way inferior to her husband, that she has a different status in Christ. The equality of men and women had been established in the very beginning. Genesis 1, chapter 27 tells us that when God created man and women, he created them both in his image. And that equality was reaffirmed in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the first thing that these men in Colossae would need to wrestle with is that by the standards of God, they are to view, for maybe the very first time, the value of their wives as equal to their own and to view their wives' humble, willingly compliance to the leadership and desires of the husbands within the lens of their submission. Submission is a choice that wives can now make, and it's a gift that they can now offer in Christ. It's an active work. We've been uh, talking about this consistently, but it's written in the present tense. And that means that this is a, an instruction, a work that wives are instructed to put on constantly. A choice that they have to make again and again, even in circumstances where the marriage is growing and it's evolving. And you might just become weary of the person that you're married to. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24 Paul explains this a little bit more. He expands on it in a parallel passage. He exhorts wives to consider the submission of their husbands within this greater context of their submission as Christians to the Lord. They don't do it in isolation. Paul's telling them that it's exampled for them in the way that Jesus himself submitted to the will of the Father. What does it say in Luke chapter 22, verse 42? says as Jesus contemplated the command that he was given, the will of his Father to go to the cross, to die for our sins. It says, Father, 
if you're willing to remove this cup from me, or excuse me, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then again in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 7, we're told that definitively, while Jesus submitted to the Father during his life on earth, he in no way was inferior to the Father. Have this mind among yourselves, it says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he'd emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was equal with the Father. And yet Jesus submitted to the will of his Father for our sake, but also because he loved the Father and because the Father loved him. So in Christ, God is revealing his design for marriage that is restored from sin and what it is supposed to look like. And Paul is saying that an essential part of that design was that wives would willingly humble themselves to respect and to honor and listen, to nurture, to nurture the leadership of their husbands. And in doing so, they would example the same behavior of love and respect that the one who rescued them in the first place displayed when he went to the cross. This design was meant to be enjoyable, church. And we know that because it's not written in isolation. Verse 18 is, is followed up quickly by verse 19. And the submission of, of wives is told to be done within the context of husbands loving their wives and not being harsh with them. Just as submission is, is to be carried out continually. Listen, church, love is meant to be carried out continually by husbands towards their wives. An active choice every single day to get up and to respond and to act in love towards their wives. Now, unfortunately, men, this is not a romantic love, okay? So for all of the men in here, we're just looking for the opportunity to gush all over their ladies. This is not it. See, this is agape. This is God's love. This is sacrificial love. This is the kind of love that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we want to attribute to romantic love, but that was actually written within the context of God's love for us first. Love is supposed to be patient and kind. It's supposed to not envy or boast. It cannot be arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoings, but love rejoices in truth. Listen, love bears all things. Men, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And in verse 8, Paul lets us know that love has no expiration date. Fellas, that's the standard. God says it's non-negotiable. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or in any such thing, that, he might, or that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, how did Christ love the church men? He died for the church. He humbled himself for the church. He loved his church. There are no exceptions, no fine print in the command to decide when we get to love our wives. In fact, if we look at the language of what it means to not be harsh with our wives, we will discover that Paul is telling the men of the church, not only are they not to lord their authority over their wives, not only are they to never abuse their wives, we are not allowed to be embittered with our wives. Men, the godly husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church. I love this quote. 
It says, the husband relentlessly avoids the temptation to resent his wife for being the person that she is. And he will actively put to death the temptation to become bitter or angry when she turns out to be, like him, a real human being and not merely the projection of his own hopes or fantasies. God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, when he's talking about the curse that was going to tear us apart, in the context of marriage, he said, Wives, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And when we heard that, and when we live that out, we understand that to mean that sin causes this dynamic in our marriage in which it becomes a competition with wives subverting the authority of their husbands and disrespecting this God-appointed responsibility that he has to lead, and the husband in turn ruling and lording over his wife in a way that is selfish and totalitarian and tyrannical. And look at what Paul says that we have now in Christ, having been freed of our sins and living a life that puts him on daily. Wives, make the choice to submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord in a way that honors Christ, in a way that looks to him and the example that he has. We get to respect and honor and cherish the man that you are bound to and follow him as he imperfectly follows Christ, even though he does not deserve it. And husbands, you get to love your wives. You get to choose not to be harsh with them. You get to love her as your sister in Christ. And listen to this, as the daughter of God. And you love her as God loved you. Love, respect, and unity. That's who you are in Christ, married Christian. In Christ, marriage will never be the same. That's our first point. Here's our second. This one is fun. It hits home. I'm just going to put that out there. We need help in this. It says verse 20 to 21, because of Christ, family will never be the same. That's the point. Because of Christ, family will never be be the same. Paul moves on to Christian parenting, okay? And this is one of those things that our ears might perk up because maybe we feel really solid in our marriage. Maybe we're in a place where we feel like that dynamic is being lived out well. And because it's in a place of health, we want to know how is it that God wants us to lead our families faithfully, to raise our children in a way that would honor him? Well, look, Paul shows us. It says in verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Okay, technical notes. Here are the fun facts. Again, much like he did with the wives um, in choosing to address children specifically. This is really fun. In giving them responsibilities and rights that they can grip when they are in Christ, Paul is actually allowing the gospel to redefine a cultural norm to give value to children in a culture in which they did not have that value previously. See, obedience would have been expected in the Roman household, we said, and in the Greek and in the Jew, but there was a difference in Christ. Paul says that there is a reasoning now for that obedience, and there is a reciprocated protection that parents will give that is radically changed by God. The Greek word for children is is techna. It is a general term for children, and it is not specific to an age group. But in the context of this passage, it refers to any child that is still living in the home and that is under parental guidance. I hope that helps some parents in the room right now. Much like the command to wives and husbands, the command to obey is in the perfect tense, which means that this is an act that children again and again and again put on daily. Anybody seeing a pattern here? Putting it on daily, okay? And moreover, right here, Paul says, children are to obey in everything. Now, we know based on the context of all of Scripture that that everything is limited to the commands that parents give that do not contradict God's word. 
And we also know that even Jesus knew in his ministry, he expressed that there would be times in which children would have to defy their parents in order to be obedient to God's higher call as a Christian. He said in Luke chapter 12, verse 51 to 53, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. However, since in the Christian home, the obligation of parents was to raise their children in the knowledge and discipline of the Lord, the context is said and implied that the children are going to have to obey a command that is quite lofty. The parents are going to be doing their responsibility of teaching their children, and in response, it is the responsibility of those children to obey. Listen, he does not say, kids, submit to your parents equally. He did not use that word. He said, children, hear and obey the commands of your parents, especially in this stage in your life in which you reside with them. Now, what are we to make of that, children? For the, the, the kids in their room that are still living with mom and dad who have professed belief in Christ, they still live with their parents. When do you start, or what do you do when you start to see cracks in the humanity of your parents? As the Spirit is working in your own life and you realize that your parents are not perfect. Or here's the thing, what do you do, teenagers, when that rebellious stage is kicking in and you're telling yourself constantly, I could do that better than Dad. I could teach that guy a thing or two. Well, just as the law would encourage you in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, honor your mother and father that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, that you may receive blessing of God through your obedience. At the same time, in Christ, God is telling you to obey your parents because it is the will of God. And listen, it pleases him. If you need a reason, your obedience pleases God. If you belong to the Lord, you can view your choice to obey your parents as a way in which you can actively take responsibility of reciprocating and passing on the love of God that he first gave you. Now, let's take a pause right there. This one is really interesting, this command. Um, I already kind of hinted at it, but listen, let me ask you, how is a child able to obey their parents? How is a child able to obey their parents? They're taught to by the power of the Spirit within them and by the active, proactive efforts of parents. They are taught to obey. They will be shown what discipline looks like. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but the reason why is different from our reason today. It says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so parents, just as your husbands would be wise not to point to verse 18 when deciding who gets the remote tonight, or wives, it would be very good of you not to weaponize verse 19 when come Christmas time, those real soft jammies hit the shelves. They're good. I like those jammies. I figured you guys would laugh at that, but whatever. No worries. Parents, don't lord verse 20 over your kids if you're not taking the time, if you're not devoting the energy consistently and faithfully to teach your children what it looks like to obey God's word. Discipline and instruction are the essential elements that children require in order to be obedient to both you and to God. And so we cannot abdicate that role in teaching our kids. And this means we have to do it when it's hard. 
parents, this means we have to do it when there are long, miserable nights revisiting the same old sins again and again. It means we have to choose actively to get up when we are tired and address the sins of our children in the moment and with the type of sober force that will ensure that they understand both the consequence and the severity of sin in their lives. That is the call that you took as a parent. And to that point, it would be really appropriate for us to look at the next verse. Verse 21, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, listen, in my own zeal, I've done something with this text. What I, what I have done is at times I made this calculated choice, as many have, to look at fathers in the context of this passage and say that this applies to both fathers and mothers. And it, it's not wrong of us to do that, okay? It is actually very good for both parents to take ownership of this particular act in our lives. But here's the thing. Paul already indicated that male headship in the home is ideally affirmed and needed. And I think it's really important that the responsibility of men specifically to be the tip of the spear and ensure discipline and instruction is taken very seriously. But here's the thing. When we look at this verse, it says something to us. It says, fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged, exasperated, and they lose heart and spirit. In verse 20, children were told to obey their parents. Mom and dad. That's the word. It means parents. In verse 21, Paul uses a different word, and I think he does it very intentionally. He uses the word father. Dads, I think Paul is calling us out. I think he's calling us out because in this day, as much as in the ancient days, we are the first to do this. In our anger and in our zeal, and Lord help us men in our laziness, we are the first to exasperate and discourage our children. We nag them. Excessively repeating commands over and over again that they've already acknowledged. We only demand things from them. We do not talk to them or congratulate them for their triumphs. We only show our anger to them. We lose our temper and we allow it to drive the way we communicate with them. We resort first to blows, swatting at our kids when they don't do what we say at the drop of a dime. We embarrass our kids. We treat them with contempt or mistrust in front of other people. And in isolation, we belittle them. We discourage our sons verbally and non-verbally. And listen, when we do that, we show them that they have very little value in our eyes. We give impossible demands, things that, that can't be fulfilled. And we still hold them to that expectation. And finally, and most damningly, we don't speak any gospel into their lives, fathers. We example none of the grace that we have received in Christ when we speak and we act to our children. Now these, what I just said, are extreme examples that border on and exceed abuse to children. But listen, fathers, even if we marginally enter into these realms as fathers, we need to realize that what Paul is desperately warning us intentionally against is that we are discouraging our kids. Let me tell you what encouragement is so we can understand that word. Encouragement is not building up self-esteem. That is the context in which our society will use it. And although building up self-esteem, having children who have high self-esteem might be something that is the desire of our hearts as parents, listen, encouragement is not centered on that. Encouragement is building up a child's confidence in God. 
It's helping them have courage and confidence and security in their heavenly Father. And so the terrible warning of Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, if we fail to see it, is that if we fail to rely on the knowledge and discipline of the Lord to guide us in the way that we teach our children, fathers, we run the risk of disheartening them so severely that we damage their capacity to trust in, to have confidence in, to have courage in the truth that they have a heavenly Father who loves them and who values them, and who gave everything so that your kids would be with them. Fathers, hear me and join me in this, in contemplating the crushing reality of this command right here. Will you hear me when I say that your words have power and authority in shaping the eternal destiny of your children, in building them up, and in tearing them down, will you hear me when I assure you that God expects more of us now? That in Christ, God expects and he commands a higher standard for our discipline that would not be conducted arbitrarily, lazily, haphazardly, or without sobriety. We cannot abdicate here. We can't yield in this battle as our children are being sanctified every day. We cannot retreat in the face of the onslaught being waged against the hearts and the affections of our children. We have been called to engage. We have been called to defend. We have been called to love and to protect our children. Fathers, encourage your children in the gospel. Know God's word. Start there. And example the gospel in your words and in your deeds to your children who are always watching and who desperately need you to teach them how to obey. Will you do that, dads? Are you going to accept that challenge with me today? And children, you are to respond in honoring them, not because of who they are, but because it pleases the Lord. Because of Christ, marriage will never be the same. Because of Christ, family will never be the same. And our final point today is this, because of Christ, labor will never be the same. It says bond servants or slaves in verse 22, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart and fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have also a master in heaven. Now, marriage and parenthood, they translate so readily to our lives today. We can connect to that very easily. Um, there is a truth that this is a harder passage to translate to our day today. I've mentioned previously, uh, there were one in ten human beings that lived and died as slaves in the Roman Empire. And uh, if you consider that the Romans ruled over a fourth of the world's population at the time, then at least, at least one in 40 people on the planet in Paul's day lived and died in slavery. Now, complicating our attempts to understand a passage like this is that we have a complicated history with slavery in this country. And so our understanding will be shaped by the wicked example of slavery in the United States that took nearly 600,000 people in order to, uh, to banish from our shores 
Slavery left its mark on our culture. It, it was characterized by stealing, and it was uh, articulated in the forced labor of a huge number of human beings in vast parts of all of the Americas. And, and truth be told, it wouldn't be fair to, do, to totally dismiss that, to not look at that context when we see a passage like this. Because even when we consider Roman slavery and, and we think that, yes, it is true that some chose slavery in that day as a way to, um, to serve as an alternative to death and starvation. And even though it is true that many would escape that class within Roman society and excel in their class of slavery, it was by no means, even in Paul's day, a life that would have been easy. And there is a strong possibility, even based on this text, that there was abuse by masters. So many found themselves forced into slavery as the result of war and kidnapping and a number of other factors that were not their choice. And listen, Paul knew this, and the apostles knew this, and they wrote this in that context. And this very, well, uh, this very well might be, for example, why in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, Paul encourages slaves, if you gain or if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. Do it. So what do we do with a passage like this? As we close our time together, what is the Lord attempting to teach the church of Colossae in this passage? Well, the first thing we need to know, we need to acknowledge, is that Paul does not endorse the violent overthrow of slavery. He doesn't instruct slaves to, to rise up in that moment and seek a type of justice for themselves on this earth. See, instead, Paul instructs the church to consider both slaves and masters of that day the greater context of the change that Christ brings to every relationship, including relationships that were not by choice. How do we know that? It's because when Paul describes the conduct of slaves and masters, in every case, he always requires them to remember there is a greater obligation that they have in God because of Jesus. For example, why are slaves not to be people pleasers? You know, why are they not to um, work half-heartedly to, to seek to complete tasks only when people are watching or when they receive an immediate reward? That's what that means. Well, Paul says it's because devoting themselves to their work half-heartedly or selfishly would show no reverence or fear for the Lord, who has called all people universally to have a full-hearted human life. Even if they're going to be treated like animals or worse, Paul is implying that God calls even slaves to regard themselves fully human and to relate to God and man accordingly. He goes even further when he's talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22 to 24. He says, Live as you were called, slaves. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. You do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. See, a slave's Christian conduct was to bring glory to God. Even in the potential where they would receive oppression and abuse. Their choice was to see their work, even now on this earth, as work that would always be done for the Lord. And allow them to consider always the inheritance that no earthly master would ever be able to give them. That no earthly master would be inclined to give them. Verse 24 says something fascinating. It says, you are serving the Lord Christ. There's no punctuation in Greek, and so uh, our ESV translation has a little period there. Some people think it should be an exclamation point, that Paul is screaming that out to these people who need to know desperately where their identity is, who would have the greatest risk of losing that identity because they don't own themselves. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. So no matter who owns you on this planet, 
what that means to your rights and privileges on this earth. In Christ, you have freedom of knowing that you have only one true master who rescued from the eternity or from an eternity of death in slavery to sin and will, who will one day present you equally to the father as he will the rest of his sons and daughters. And so he says to the slaves of this day, your conduct now is an example to your earthly masters, whether they are just or unjust, of what it looks like to belong to God, who will ultimately judge both the wicked slave and the wicked master with impartiality. Now here's the thing, what does Paul say about masters in this dynamic? He says, masters treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that they also have a master in heaven. Uh, the, the, the masters also have a master in heaven. Masters are told by Paul, listen, you might be the master here on earth, but you are not the master of your own life. Ultimately, whatever status you have in this planet when Jesus rescues you, you are ultimately, as Paul describes himself in Romans, a slave, a doulos of Christ. And we ought to be reminded that as we undertake greater and greater responsibility on this earth, that every single person will be accountable to their master. All have been put under subjugation to Jesus. All will ultimately answer to him. And so Paul reminds masters, listen, humble yourself and tread lightly. Now, church, to my knowledge in Christ, there is, there is no one here who is living as a slave. And there are no, uh, no one among us that is wielding ownership of another human being. However, there is a principle in this text that we can derive and apply to our own lives. See, we can all see that all of us are called to labor for other human beings and organizations during the course of our life, perhaps every single day. We have to submit ourselves again and again and again to obey our earthly masters. And many of us in this room are going to be called to do that same task while taking on responsibility progressively for more and more human beings, to lead them well, and to wield an enormous amount of power and influence over other people's lives. And so the lesson of the master and slave relationship found here will be lived out in how we choose to live out those relationships. God's going to challenge us every single day to be salt and light, regardless of what our economic status is. And if so, we are going to find ourselves in situations where when work seems thankless and worthless and oppressive, the text is going to remind us that we ultimately serve at the pleasure of our Heavenly Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we do wield authority on this earth, if you have employees that are working under you, even now we are reminded today not to take your authority for granted, but to see the opportunity God has given us to entrust to us people who requ are required to see his grace and his love with which he has treated us. In Christ, our relationships are radically and irrevocably different, church. Doesn't matter if it's marriage or parenting, if you are a child, uh, a slave or a master, um, invested in your labors, whatever the case may be, God is telling us that we're supposed to be different. And so let's consider a couple of things as we close our time today. There's a lot of opportunity for this first one. If there's any arrogance in our walk today, in how we are living out our marriages as wives and husbands or our family dynamics as parents or kids, how we are going out in the workplace, if we are uh, living a daily walk that is showing arrogance, then the lesson of today is that we need to shed that immediately. In the language of chapter three, we need to put that to death. Every example of relationship is saturated, all of them, in self-denying love for other people. And every single one of those relationships is saturated in self-denying love for people that are unworthy of that love. In Christ, we've been given freedom. We can love, we can submit, and we can obey regardless of how others treat us. 
Second thing we can be reminded of today is that our primary concern in Christ is our vertical relationship with Christ. Did you notice that he says, in the Lord or in Christ constantly throughout this entire passage? Our primary concern is supposed to be centered on the relationship that will be the ultimate determiner in all of our horizontal relationships. God comes first in our lives, in all circumstances. And because God comes first, we can put the people around us, and insufferable as they may be at times, before ourselves, constantly and persistently and relentlessly and repentantly. And the final thing we can take away from our text today is that we need to identify the people around us that are doing this well. In these relationships, listen, there are many people in this room right now that have the desire to put on Christ and, and you've been driven to his word and you're reading this text today and you're understanding what I'm saying and you just don't know what it looks like practically in the world around us. Well, church, look around. Look at the Christ followers that are in this room that are living out their marriages in a way that are repentant and loving, that are seeking after the discipleship of their children actively, and those children are bearing fruit and they're being baptized. Look at the men and women in this room that are leading with with amazing distinction within the workplace and are not sacrificing their testimony in Christ. Look around you, church, and see that not only has God changed you and set you on a rhythm that will be different from the rest of this world. But he has freed you to look at his wisdom, take a look at your spiritual family, and discover what it looks like to radically live a different life for Jesus. Because of Christ, nothing will ever be the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you, God, for for who you are and what you have done. Lord, your word testifies to the truth that uh, we were slaves uh, to our trespasses, to the sins that had a grip on our hearts. And for everyone in, in this room that belongs to you, Lord, we have been liberated to a life in which your example is the the pinnacle of what we would desire in our hearts, what we would seek after daily. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your salvation that changes everything. Lord, thank you for the work that you are actively doing in our hearts to make us more like your son, Jesus. Father, would you, uh, in this room, convict hearts that do not know you? Would you allow them to understand that if they are not in Christ, there is a sin that is enslaving, that denies our ability to live out these relationships in a way that would honor you, that remains under this great curse that is subversive and damaging and awful. Lord, would you convict hearts and allow them to realize that the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah who lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again to affirm his power to save us. By your grace, Father, through faith in Jesus Christ, we might be saved and anticipate with hope the day in which you will make all things new. Would you do that change in lives today to give that faith, Lord, And for all of the rest of us that are struggling, God, I lift up every marriage in this room, those who are parents and continue to be parents, for those of us who are laboring in this world and trying to figure out what it looks like to represent you and also struggle with the brokenness of this world. God, would you do that work? Would you put a change in us, God, that would give us new eyes and new ears and help us to pursue in love the people around us that might even actively be trying to destroy us? Lord, You are worth it. And your word says, Jesus, that you are all, be all in our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen.